Our reading this morning is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 4, starting at verse 21. And he said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed, and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, Pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And he said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, and then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God, or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak with them without a parable, but privately to his disciples he explained everything. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Well, I'm glad to see uh, you all here this morning. You could, uh, again, you could be doing other things. You could have forgotten that it was Sunday. Because uh, <laughs> we're all in Groundhog Day now. But uh, I am... Uh, I'm praying for us as a church, uh, for each of you individually, that this time that we're apart will not be full of stresses that it is, full of anxieties and fears, challenges, uh, too many demands on your time, not enough demands on your time, loneliness, uh, whatever else may be pressing in on you, uh, even if sickness uh, has come to you or your family, that this time will be a time where we continue to grow, even through the challenges and the difficulties, uh, that we grow in maturity individually, uh, that we grow as a community because we have to be intentional to care for one another uh, and even have to be intentional to care for uh, our other neighbors. So Lord, so we, uh, as we go to prayer, let's ask the Lord to uh, be at work through his word. Father, we pray that you would speak to us through your word, by your spirit, because we know that it is uh, only through your spirit that your word is effective, and we know that it is only in your word that we find the good news of Jesus. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. I don't know if you think a lot about metaphors. Um, It's kind of, uh, most of us don't stop and think about the stuff we learned about in high school English very often, but... The, uh, but a good metaphor sinks in deep, right? It gets kind of roots in your head. It, uh, the metaphors for the really important things in life uh, almost take on a kind of controlling uh, power in our life, right? We start to think about the shape of what's going on in our lives differently when a really powerful metaphor works. 
And you can think there have, there have been great masters of metaphor. You know, of course, Shakespeare's probably at the top of the list, right? You can think about his famous line from Macbeth, that life is but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage. Uh, or even, you know, Shakespeare could even pull off the rare negative metaphor. My mistress's eyes are not like the sun. Most people can't even, can't pull that off. But Shakespeare could pull it off. But then we all know of really bad metaphors. And um, I thought of a few preaching illustrations from, that were bad metaphors, which I'm not going to use because I think every preacher pulls off a really bad metaphor from time to time. And I'm afraid that will come back to bite me. But I was thinking about who is, who is the, uh, the master of the botched metaphor. And of course, uh, the answer is Michael Scott from The Office. Uh, my favorite botched metaphor from Michael Scott was from uh, an episode called The Coup when Dwight tried to undermine Michael with the, uh, with the, the folks at corporate. And, and towards the end of the episode, Michael is, says this. He says, business is like a jungle. There's your metaphor. And I'm like a tiger. And Dwight is like a monkey that stabs the tiger in the back with a stick. Does the tiger fire the monkey? Does the tiger transfer the monkey to another branch? Pun. There is no way of knowing what the, goes on inside the tiger's head. We don't have the technology. It's such, a, it's such a beautifully botched metaphor, right? Not only does he confuse the metaphor for the reality, but then he loses track of what he's talking about in the first place with the tiger. And it's so amazing. And I think when we come to some of these parables that Jesus tells, and maybe even especially these short parables, we're kind of scratching our heads sometimes, and we're a little bit like, is Jesus more like Shakespeare or more like Michael Scott? Because I'm not sure I know what is going on here. Uh, and he's starting to tell these parables about what the kingdom of God is like. And so what we see unfolding in these parables that are kind of smushed together is that the kingdom exposes everything. The kingdom grows unseen. And the kingdom starts small. So the kingdom exposes everything. It grows unseen. And it starts small. It exposes everything. Notice Jesus begins by talking about a lamp. Now he doesn't say the kingdom of God is like a lamp. Instead he just says, he just brings up the lamp, right? But it's clearly a metaphor for what he's doing. There's a purpose in bringing bringing out a lamp. This is what he's saying verses in verse 21, you don't light a lamp to then cover it up. Why would you do that? It would be a complete waste of your time, your effort, your oil for your lamp. It would be a total waste of time. You don't, light a, you don't turn on a light in your house just to cover it up. The, the point is, I mean, really obvious, like many of Jesus' metaphors, it's obvious that you wouldn't do that. And so, you do it, in other words, you, light, you turn on a light, you light a lamp, in order to reveal what would be hidden otherwise by the darkness. You do this to reveal something. And so Jesus has that little turn of phrase about, about uh, nothing being uh, hidden that won't be revealed. It's a, it's a strange turn of phrase. He uses it in a few other places, actually. He uses it in Matthew 10, 26, in Luke 12, 2. To other purposes, it's kind of fascinating, this is a little side note about Jesus and his teaching ministry, is that Jesus was 
a kind of itinerant teacher. So if you collect everything we have of Jesus saying, you could probably read through them in an hour. But he did this for years, and he, he taught in multiple places, teaching probably much of, many of the same things, having many of the same kind of turns of phrase, but he, he will use them to different ends. So what an older generation of scholars used to think, especially in the 19th century and early 20th century, was that there were these inconsistencies in Jesus' teaching. It's become obvious that actually they're prob- it's probably just that he employs different turns of phrase to slightly different contexts and slightly different ends. And he, he took up the same kind of content of teaching, though he would apply it slightly differently as he was in different places and with different people. So he has this little turn of phrase, what is hidden will be revealed. But in the context here, what he's saying is, is look, I lit a lamp to reveal. I came to do this. In fact, Jesus says in in John 8, that I am the light of the world. The lamp is about his king, the kingdom, but it's, you know, of course, about the king who brings in the kingdom. Jesus is the one who's revealing, which makes a lot of sense in context. You, you'll have to, if you've been with us, remember back two weeks to the previous passage. The previous passage, Jesus talked about, told a parable about sowing seed and the different kind of ground it fell into. And what we took away from that was saying that Jesus was saying that the Word of God reveals our hearts. It reveals what's going on. And so Jesus is building off of that idea here. He's changed the metaphor now. He's not talking about soil. He's talking about how he has lit a lamp to reveal what is going on in our lives, what is going on in our hearts. Which is why then he can say in, you know, verses 24 and 25 that you know, the haves will have more, and the have-nots will have less. Because this isn't about money or possessions or anything like that. This is about whether you have met Jesus, whether you have engaged him, whether you have actually seen the light or not. If you're already growing, you're going to grow deeper. If you're already withering, you're going to wilt even further. It is like, uh, it is like in other words, maybe, <laughs> to uh, use a related metaphor to what Jesus is saying, it is like the sum, summer sun beating down. If you're already a plant wilting under that, you're going to continue to wither. But if you're growing with the sunlight, you're going to continue to grow stronger, grow even more. And all of this is a way of saying that Jesus is saying, look, you, you've got to understand that what, I, what I'm doing is exposing something about you. When I've showed up as the light of the world, something about you and the way you respond to me is exposed. You're exposed by how you respond to me. Now, that might sound a little strange. And of course, you know, evangelicals have always talked about a relationship with, with Jesus. Uh, but think about it. You, the way that we build significance in this world is always related to who we know, to who we've hitched our wagon to. Even if you tell yourself that you're not so much invested in other people, but you, you think of yourself in terms of your own goodness, 
You think of yourself in terms of your own intelligence, maybe your own status. Those are almost always defined in reference to other people. We can't help but think of ourselves in comparative terms. And in most societies, this is what we've always done, is we compare ourselves, we, we, we think of ourselves and our values being connected to other people. So if you're in a traditional culture, a more conservative culture, you would think often about your family and who you're connected to. In every conservative traditional culture, you tend to gravitate towards and highlight the significant people in your family, the people that others want to emulate, and you tend to downplay the the uh, the folks in your family that were an embarrassment. You tend to try to avoid certain family members. Not that any of us would do that. But it, you know, even even in a more uh, even in a more kind of capitalistic society, one that's moved away from the traditional ties, a more uh, a more mobile society, we still have these people that we hitch our wagon to. I mean, when I you know when you're when you're young, right, it's about, like, what bands do you listen to? I mean, that's what I always talked about in high school, right? Because it, it meant something about you. And, of course, now, like, with lifestyle brands, that become even more significant. Who The influencers that you follow, that sort of thing. That was what you, you talk about. But even as you get older, it just changes, right? And one of the most powerful, of course, is the political leaders we align ourselves with. You're literally, people literally put their names in their front yard, and stick their name on the back of their car. And while this pandemic has uh, maybe dialed down some of the politicking that would normally be going on in an election year, we all know that's coming. We all know that eventually we're going to be having, we're going to be seeing more and more of these stickers, more and more of these signs, and we all know we're going to be thinking about other people based on what name they've associated themselves with. And we'll be thinking about ourselves and what name we associate with. It's, it's, it's also true in the fields in which we work, right? I mean, maybe you kind of have hitched your wagon to a rising star in your company, your organization, your field. Maybe you have mentors, right, who have helped walk you through it. Even if you work at home, I mean, there are still sort of people to follow, <laughs> That, uh, that are meaningful, and you kind of, you know, we kind of compare ourselves to each other and who we're following. And whatever the case is, we are always thinking about ourselves in terms of who it is that we think is the most significant. We always do this. We can never seem to escape it. And it's not, by the way, that those things aren't important. I mean, of course, elections are important. Of course, you know, the arts are important. Of course, you're People that are leading in your field are important. But Jesus is saying, look, there is someone who has redefined and is redefining everything, is revealing everything about who we think we are in the world, and that's me. And, of course, the, the real encounter with Jesus comes as Jesus' life continues. It's what we've been focusing on, what we were focusing on last week especially. It is the cross and the resurrection. You see, that is the crisis point. Whether you want to deal with Jesus as he's hanging on the cross is everything about how you want to deal with Jesus. 
The, the funny fact of the matter is, while Jesus is a good moral teacher, in fact, he spends most of his time not talking about ethical issues. He's known for his parables, but in fact, most of the parables don't have anything to do with ethics. They're about the kingdom, and they're about the king of that kingdom. And so it, when we confront Jesus, the more we deal with Jesus and who he is, and particularly what he accomplished on the cross, the more it exposes who we are. And that's helpful, you see, because what I'm saying isn't simply that, well, I know that we have all of these other important, you know, ties in our life to other people, and Jesus should just be the first. I mean, that's true. But of course, there's many a many a person in the church who has said, well, yeah, of course Jesus is most important, but in practice, he is way down the list. What I'm what I'm suggesting is that the way that you know in practice is the is the degree to which you're really willing to focus on the cross and to really think about this is the person who has redefined my life. In other words, are we thinking more about the implications of that, of of our Savior who's been crucified and risen from the dead, than we are on all those other commitments? Because the cross has a clarifying effect, doesn't it? You see, all of those other commitments that we, that we, all those other people we tend to hitch our wagon to give us something that we can hang our hat on. They raise our status in some way. They make us seem more uh, important, more perceptive, cleverer. They might actually make us, you know, kind of rise our status in the organization or in our community. But a man hanging on a cross offers you nothing. But of course, in another sense, then he also offers you everything. He offers you a totally different way of understanding your life. I mean, that's what's clarified by the light of Jesus. But he goes on to say then that the kingdom grows unseen. So Jesus tells another parable. He says, look, there's a, this is verses 26 through 29. He says, uh, so there's a guy sowing. We just heard a parable in, in the previous passage about a man sowing. So he, he uses a similar one. He says there's a, another guy who's out sowing seed, right? He's, he's growing grain. And Jesus loves these agricultural metaphors for an agricultural world that he lived in. He says, look, he, he's throwing these seeds out, and he can't make them grow. He's growing grain. I mean, this is a lot of crop, right? <laughs> this isn't just one plant. And, uh, and this is a pre-industrial world. He is relying on the rain, and he's relying on the sun. And he, he, can, do, he can do minor but not very significant things to affect water and sunshine. Uh, He has to rely on those being given for things to grow. Interestingly, Paul uses a really similar metaphor in 1 Corinthians 3 to talk about the church. He says, you know, somebody else planted, I watered, but it's God who made this thing grow. 
so this idea, right, is that the, that the kingdom continues to grow because of the, uh, the, the internal resources in the seed and what external resources beyond our control are given by God himself, of course. And so, uh, so the seed continues to grow. I, and I was thinking about this with, uh, at our old house before we moved. We had, a, we had some flowers that, Lila had, that we planted that were Lila's in our front flower bed. She got, there's some sort of perennial, I don't even know what they were, beautiful little purple flowers. But it was this tiny plant. And, you know, we, she got it from some, something years ago. And we decided to plant it in our flower bed. And we probably gave it a little bit of water the first, like, week in which we planted it and literally never did anything for this plant ever again. And every year, it grew back bigger and stronger than before. You know, it would, it would just get decimated by the New England winter. And then every spring, there it was, growing back bigger than it had been the previous year. It just kept growing and growing. It was a beautiful plant, right? I should figure out what it was. But it's just like that. I mean, it's the same metaphor, right? That you're not taking care of this thing. This thing grows because of what it is and because of what God sends for it to grow. And this is so helpful for us to understand as a church. I mean, I'm, th- I'm thinking about this, especially even in light of what the session has written over uh, you know, those last uh, few letters, right? Is that this is God's thing that grows. It's not ours. And we can't engineer the church. You can't engineer the kingdom of God to grow. There are uh, a lot of churches that look put together, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're healthy. Of course, there's a lot of churches that are kind of chaotic, and that doesn't mean they're healthy either. Right? It, it is to say right, that uh, there's all this material out there, there's all these different ways that you can think about growing. And anybody whose church grows at all gets a book deal. Uh, or starts to package something that they can sell on the online, right, on their online store, of, uh, of how you can emulate what they have. And it, it never works. It li- literally never works. I don't know how this continues to, to propagate. And of course, it's not that you can't learn from that, and that can't be useful. But if you're thinking, like, if we just do this program, we're going to blow up like that other church did, it literally never works. It fails 100% of the time. Uh, we want to learn, of course, from wisdom of others, right? But there are so many factors that go into any particular church growing that are just variables that you can't account for. And in fact, I dare say that most of the people who are putting those books out, putting all that material out, can't account for all those factors. Most of all, because they can't account for the mystery of God's wisdom and action in the world. And they can't, you can't account for the matter of the heart that's involved in the hearts that are changed. Again, that doesn't mean we're lazy. The implication here isn't that this farmer has been, is just plants a seed and then doesn't do anything. Of course, he's out there. I'm sure he's weeding. I'm sure he's getting, trying to get the pests and the you know, animals away from, from his crops that are growing up. I mean, he's, he's doing what he can, but, but it won't grow because of him. And this is exactly how it is with the church. The church really only grows when what we're planting is the gospel. Other things might grow up that seem to resemble it. But that's not real growth. That's not healthy growth if it isn't from the gospel. 
And of course, it isn't real growth if it isn't from the Spirit. Uh, sometimes we try to fake the work of the Spirit. And, uh, and so you know that you're faking the work of the Spirit when you are emphasizing sort of one side of the fruit of the Spirit, but completely ignoring others. You got that kind of complete dysfunction, you know you're trying to fake the work of the Spirit. And the point, of course, of all this is that we should have humility in the midst of it. I mean, every this is about me as much as it is about anyone else in the church too, right? I mean, we need humility about whatever is going on in the church that's good and growing. That is from God. And, I mean, every pastor wants to, you know, have a big church and be respected and all these other things, right? But, like, this is the work of God. Not me, not the session, not all of you who put in so much work. I mean, those are good things to do, but when the but real healthy growth comes from God. Not our efforts. And it also means we should have confidence in God's role in the process. That we should have confidence that God is calling us to preach the gospel. To preach it to ourselves, to preach it to others, to invite others into this, that we should sow the gospel and we should trust in him. I mean, in one sense, right, all of that stuff that the elders wrote, I mean, this is what it boils down to, right? We should sow the gospel, I mean, in, in, in all its fullness, right? We should sow the gospel and we should trust in God. You might say that that is as simple as it gets. And I don't mean to, I don't mean that all that is not worth our time. Believe me, I think all that was worth our time. I think, I mean, there's plenty of things I've got in my head about what we ought to be doing as a church. But we should never lose sight of that. That it's as simple as sowing the gospel and trusting in the Lord and trusting him practically, right? Prayer. Of course, doing all the things that we should do to steward what he's given us, but trusting in God that he'll provide. Looking to him to be the one that provides. Because the way that the kingdom grows is not by management techniques. The way that the kingdom grows is not by buying into measures of success that are the standard industry numbers. Our measure of success is changed hearts that are changed by the gospel, that are meeting Jesus. That's what a standard of success is in the church. And that's why it grows unseen, because that can never really be measured, at least outwardly. There's always some degree to which we have to leave that to God. And trust that he is at work, even in the imperfections of our church. And notice this last, this last parable. The, it teaches us that the kingdom starts small. This is the parable of the mustard seed, verses 31 and 32. He says that mustard seed is the tiniest seed, and it grows into the biggest bush. Now, I... <laughs> It is weird how much commentaries spend time talking about, well, there are actually smaller seeds than the mustard seed. And there are actually larger things than this bush. Because it's a bush. It's not a tree. It's, 
I was Google. I had to Google mustard plants, you know, this this week because I literally, I mean, not only to my agricultural knowledge, uh, limited about the perennials that were growing in our front yard. I literally, I have no idea about a mustard plant. Uh, apparently, it grows naturally to about somewhere between six and twenty feet, and sometimes gets up to almost thirty feet. So it's pretty big, right? This is a big bush. Um, but the point, of course, isn't that Jesus is being over is trying to be technical, right? The point is the the contrast between the start and the end, the, the what it begins as and what it grows into. The point Jesus is trying to make is this thing is going to start small, but it will continue to grow unnoticed until it is huge, until it is this benefit to all the other animals living around it, all the other you know flora and fauna living around it. Uh, it is this, it starts small and it grows big. And think about it, this is how the church actually has been historically. I was just reading in Acts 1 this week, the church started with about 120 people that were all hanging around. Uh, that's not many people. In, in, in the whole world, there were 120 people. That's how it started. Uh, and of course, you, you see the story in Acts of the church growing, right? Uh, but even now, the church continues to grow. Uh, it's the largest religion in the world. And it's true not only just of Christianity as a whole, but it's true of churches in particular. This is really important to see. And if you read through the book of Acts, you will notice that there are a few rare occasions where there is a huge number of conversions all at once. Acts 2 is one of those occasions. And, you know, so easily we tend to think of that as like the paradigm for how a church ought to grow, right? But if you read through the rest of the book of Acts, what do you notice? But that Paul shows up and a few people come to faith in a town. And then he moves on, either you know because he intends to go somewhere else or because he's driven out of that place. But it's just a small group. I mean, sometimes there's encounters that are literally just a family. Or even an individual. I mean, one of the oldest churches, you know, group of churches in the world starts with that Ethiopian eunuch that Philip meets. It begins with one person. What Jesus is teaching here is, I mean, demonstrably true in that sense, uh, but ought to be encouraging to us as we think about our own church. I mean, I, I can think of several churches that I've, I've, uh, that I've been in that, you know, the, the size of the congregation at any given moment was not that big, but they had a huge effect. So my father pastored a church for 25 years in a military town. And that church probably never got over 300. I didn't check the numbers, but, you know, it, to, to, my, to my memory and recall, it never really got over about 300. But, you know, well over 1,000, 1,500 people probably went through that church in those 25 years. The, there were two churches in Boston we were involved in, one when I was in seminary and then, you know, when I was the campus minister. And Boston is extremely transient, right? It's all these people in, uh, that show up for schooling or maybe entry kind of jobs, and then they move away or they move out to the suburbs. I mean, both of those churches were not that large, but so many people came through them. 
over the years. I mean, they had a profound reach. And what does that mean about us? I mean, we're not that large. But we know what God has called us to, to sow the gospel and to trust in him. And he will continue to grow it. Now, I don't know what all the factors are between a six-foot mustard plant and a 20-foot mustard plant. I don't know what all goes on in between there. Uh, My suspicion is that you have very little control over that. And in the same way, I mean, I think that we do as well, but there are so many possibilities here to trust in God, to see that what he has given us is a calling to be faithful to his word and to trust in him and to see what grows out of this small seed. I mean, we've already seen, before I got here, growth. (laughs) I mean, think about all the different possibilities that are there for us to continue to grow. About all the opportunities we have to love our neighbors, to think about others, to invite them. But here's, here's what I think really gets me about this passage. Uh, and as I think about, you know, the unseen aspect of this, about the smallness of it and how it grows, is I think we can have different ideas about what this thing could be, about what two rivers could become. And look, we, perhaps we want, we want growth in terms of numbers and buildings and programs and all those other things. And I've got lots of ideas about that. I mean, there's plenty I think we could do and would love to see us be able to do. And maybe those things will happen. Uh, I, I, we can think about people we would love to be part of our church, right? We can think about people that we know that are like us that are our friends and neighbors that we'd love to invite and incorporate. We can think about people who are very different than us that we would love to see part of our congregation. And I long for that. And maybe that will happen. We can think about wanting to influence you know, Park Circle. We can think about want, you know, wanting to influence our city as a whole. We can, we can, we can long to be you know, the kind of place that people say, well, man, that church is really... Uh, great for our city. And I want that. And maybe that will happen. My suspicion is, though, that whatever it is we want our church to be, God will make it something kind of different. Maybe not drastically different. Maybe not entirely the opposite of what we think. But it won't be our dream. Because the kingdom is not our dream. It is God's handiwork. It is what God grows. And I know that whatever happens over the coming years, that God will do what is best for his kingdom. Because God loves the church. God loves two rivers more than I do, more than the elders do, more than any of us do. And God is more committed to the growth of his kingdom here than we are. And the proof of it is written on Jesus' hands and in his side. His kingdom is growing.
and he will make it beautiful, more beautiful than we could ever dream it of. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you've given us to your son, that we are Jesus' bride, that we are uh, your household, that we are the temple of the Spirit. We pray that your kingdom would continue to grow here. Pray that it would grow in two rivers, that it would grow uh, around Park Circle, that it would grow in Charleston as a whole. Lord, that it would grow around the world. But Lord, we pray that it would grow as you want it to grow, on earth as it is in heaven. And that we'd have the humility to recognize that you're the one that's at work that you're the one who has the master plan, and we pray that we would be faithful in sowing the gospel, and we'd be confident in trusting in you. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.